morning as we continue on in First Peter, a grounded faith. Uh, we look at the idea of a settled hope. And I put down as a question, what is your hope or on what have you pinned your security, your expectations, and your passion? I read a story of a World War II prisoner uh, in a concentration camp, and he had a dream in one of the nights in which a voice asked him, would he like an answer to any question? And the man asked to know when the war for him would be over. And the voice in his mind told him March 30th. The man shared his dream with a friend, and the friend is the one who wrote the story, a doctor. Uh, The dreamer was filled with hope, yet as the predicted date approached, it was apparent as the news came in that the war would not be over by March 30th. On March 29th, the dreamer became ill. By the 30th, he was delirious. By the 31st, he had died. Uh, The outward physical cause of death, they said, was typhus. Uh, But those who understand the power of lost hope understand that his lack of immunity, his will to live, was tied directly to that vanishing hope. Because hope is powerful and it is directive. Hope encompasses our plans, our goals, our ambition, our base, our security. It encompasses our purpose. Our hope looks forward to the future, and that hopeful look forward becomes a bedrock to our life and how we plan on living. It becomes your passion, and Peter is working to connect the churches, and really when we say church, he's talking about believers in Asia Minor to the hope in Christ and his eminent return, and how that hope forms or shapes how they think and live. It directs their passion, a passion that is to be for Christ and not a passion resting in this world. Their hope must ever remain Him, Christ, and His reward, and not be a hope that has settled for or is in this world. It has to be a hope that is settled in Christ. You see, when those believers had come to faith, they thought Christ's return was going to be very quick. So as they believed, they were already looking for His return. They expected it to happen When I say in their lifetime, I would say in the decade, in that year, they were very much looking for Christ to return. Well, the quick return hope has passed. As Helm notes, those early Christians were now adrift in difficult days, so hope sagged and the winds of spiritual vigor had died down. When Christ is coming back tomorrow in your mind, well, your focus and hope is strictly Him. But as you see time pass, well, suddenly it's easy to move your eyes off of the hope in Christ and get caught up in the hope that the world may offer. And I'm not saying that they fixed on a sinful object, but they fixed on an object that wasn't Christ and it wasn't eternity and it wasn't his eminent return. And what they needed was a settled hope. They needed to look up and see the reality of their hope They needed to make sure that their life was lived in light of that hope, a hope that looks forward to Christ's return. That's not going to happen by accident. Peter has told them in his introduction that they have a living hope. Really, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. It is the only hope. Christ is the only hope that doesn't fail ultimately, that doesn't come short. Every hope that's in this world, no matter how big you build it or how much cushion you put around it to let it not be dinged up, ultimately will never fulfill what 
it's been given, right? It'll always come short. And so he told them, you have a living hope. And he, and he spent a significant amount of time describing their great salvation. But they needed to set their hope, their passion, their priority, their base, their security on grace They needed to have a faith and hope that are in God. And so when you read in verse 13, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He closes out this segment saying that your faith and hope might be in God. But as we've already noted, having a hope fixed on God's grace and having a hope fixed on his eminent return, having a hope rested only in him and not in this world is not going to happen by accident. For us to truly hope to the end, to set our hope fully, and by that word fully means completely and confidently. So you're not partitioning your hope. It's not, I hope this works out and this works out. It's, I hope only in this, and I have full confidence that it will work out. You're going to have to do more than sit back and just wait for it to happen. That hope is not a passive thing. Instead, it will take having a right mind, is what Peter talks about, holy thinking, living a right life, which is holy living, which, by the way, will become the overarching topic for the rest of this letter. And in this text here, not to get into boring grammar, but I'm going to do it for just a minute, the idea of hope is a verb, and the idea of holy living is a verb, and all the other action steps are participles, which then if you're a grammarian, and I'm not, um, but we'll serve those two. And so as we look at this idea of hope, Peter was fixing on this hope, and then he's also introducing in a powerful way what he's going to talk about for the rest of the book. How do you live out a holy life in this world as they walk through and ultimately dealing with suffering? But he's driving in and saying, you have to have a right mind, and you have to have a right life, and it needs to be driven by the right motivation, We're motivated by many things, right? Uh, Hunger will motivate you to work uh, so you can eat or to cook. Uh, You can be motivated by guilt. You can be motivated by keeping up an image. And and what Peter is going to talk about is what will drive right living and right thinking has to be the right motivation, which encompasses the bulk of uh, these verses. So Peter is pivoting here at this therefore or wherefore, uh, depending on translation, where you're going to turn. The whole letter turns here. So he's introduced it and he's turning his focus now and diving in. And he begins by addressing your mind. How do you think? And he calls them and us to pursue a right mind. That's verse 13 says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A truly settled hope, a hope fixed solely on Christ and his eminent return requires us to get a grip on our thinking. And I put here, we're to have gathered thoughts or we are to gather our thoughts. Uh, Thomas Cahill, in speaking of thought during the dark ages, stated that the intellectual disciplines of distinction, definition that had once been the glory of men like Augustine were unattainable by readers of the dark ages whose apprehension of the world was simple and immediate, framed by myth and magic. It was a world not of thoughts, but of images. Our world today is not a world of thoughts either. It is all image. As Helm notes, we think with our eyes. 
And as a result, our minds are never made ready for running. We're never ready to actually think, let alone run this exilic race called the Christian life. See, Peter's calling us to be ready to be prepared, and that's what he's going to be talking about. But we live in a day and age that doesn't even have a minds that are engaged. We are image-driven. We are thinking, quote-unquote, like the dark ages, not in its ignorance of medicine and technology, etc., but in how it processed life. We need to capture our thoughts. We need to make sure we're not tripping over them or getting entangled in them. In that time and area, uh, everyone basically, it's hard for us to imagine getting tripped up in, a, in, in our clothes, right? We wear pants, we don't get tangled up. And in that time, everyone basically wore a long robe for their outer clothes. So if you're about to run anywhere, if you're about to engage in warfare, you could not do so effectively with your outer garment hanging down to the ankles. You would trip up or you would at least reduce your agility. Can you imagine in battle, and I'm not going to pretend to know how to sword fight because that would just look awkward up here. Um, but uh, imagine engaging in a sword battle and getting caught up in the robes that were there. And so what would happen is to prevent the in- inhibition of your movement, a soldier or an athlete would take, or even a fisherman for that matter, would take their robe, gather it up and cinch it with their belt. They would tie it up. And so in that way, they would have complete freedom and mobility And so when Peter says, take the loose robes of your mind and gather it up, it's a fitting metaphor. Gather up your thoughts, pull in the loose ends. Here's what he's saying. Discipline your mind so you're thinking, and I always throw this out there, your daydreams and all, line up with the biblical priority. Get your thoughts in order. That doesn't mean you're suddenly an organized mind. It means you don't let your mind wander into areas that they shouldn't be thinking of. Be prepared. And by the way, when you're prepared, you look it. No one was guessing when a soldier took their robe and pulled it up and belted around. Well, they only did that because they're getting ready to enter combat. It was time for a life and death struggle. And what Peter is telling the church in Asia Minor, and he's telling to us, is that you're in battle. And if you're going to be ready to fight, if you're going to be ready to fight against the devil and and fight against this world and fight against your own flesh, that you had better cinch up your thoughts. You better get them in order. That's how we approach the Christian life. We must gather our thoughts, which means to not be chasing the whims and sins of our mind, And it's crucial because we're to make discerning decisions. That's where it means to be sober, be sober-minded, keep sober in spirit. And sober of mind, and I know when you see that, if I say make sure you're sober, most of us recognize that you shouldn't be intoxicated with any type of substance that would alter your mind. But the second we say be sober in spirit, we somehow try to find some other definition for it. And there's actually commentators that wander off into that realm. But the reality is the word means the same. Sober of mind means free from every form of mental or spiritual drunkenness. Sober of mind means be discerning. Don't be out of control. Do not lose control of thought or action. Do not let how and what you think and decide be intoxicated, influenced by this world and its patterns. Because that's how it happens. 
Because everyone will justify their thinking pattern. They'll say, well, you know, I grew up this way and I thought this way and I was raised here and you were raised there. And Peter says, forget all that. Don't be intoxicated with this world's thinking. Don't let it influence you. When you think of drunkenness, we always think of the numbing factor. What it is, is it's a controlling factor. That's why it says in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, but be controlled by the Spirit. Move, because it becomes what controls you. And so when Peter says, be sober in mind, he says, don't let this world intoxicate you. Don't let it influence you. Don't get distracted with this world and begin to act according to or in line with that distraction. Think with me for a second. What do you want from your teenage driver? Just for a second. I put a few things down. We want them to drive free from arrogant thoughts of their ability. I have boys, and so I know that's in their brain. I'm amazing. I can drive, right? Free from friendly texts. Free from poor analysis of a situation followed by the wrong response. Free from distraction, right? Focus. What do we always say? Focus on what you're doing. I was in high school just to prove how intellectual my class was. And a girl in my class uh, ran off the road and hit a tree. She was fine. Um, Nothing could hurt her. Just kidding. Um, She came to school and we asked her, oh, you got in a wreck, you know, that's terrible. We pretended to think that. And then we asked her, what happened? You know, was there a dog Uh, in the road or a deer. I have a brother who supposedly swerved to miss a dog and hit a ditch because a dog makes a convenient excuse, right? Uh, Was it a, a tire that blew out? Did you fall asleep? She instead readily admitted, this is shocking, um, that she forgot she was driving, reached behind her to get something out of her backpack and thus ran off the road and hit a tree which is why teenagers shouldn't drive. That's just my conclusion. I put here, though, don't be that person spiritually. Because as ridiculous as it is that she's driving a car, forgets that she's driving the car, which seems impossible to me, and turns around and gets something from her backpack, it is equally ridiculous to be a Christian living this life and then just turn around distracted by some other thought that comes in mind, making a decision that leads to destruction. Don't become distracted by your surroundings. Don't become distracted by your thoughts all tangled up, resulting in unbiblical and thus unwise decision. You see, your settled hope, your fixed priority for Christ, because understand that we see hope as this Like, oh, that'll be good and it gives me encouragement. But hope also is directive. It tells you what you're shooting for. It's your passion, your fixed priority for Christ. And on his return will stray if your mind strays. So I'm going to say this probably multiple times. Get a grip on your mind. Capture your thoughts. Screen out the influence of this world so that your decisions show Christ-like biblical discernment. To have a settled hope, you have to have a settled mind. You have to have a holy mind. You have to have girded up those thoughts, tied them up, and you have to not become intoxicated with this world in whatever way or form that it would intoxicate you to influence your decision-making. Because we're all called to right thinking, which is foundational now to right living. 
Look at verse 14. I'm going to read 14 and just a portion of 15. As obedient children, and don't miss the fact that he calls us children, which tells us we're part of his family. It says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourself according to the former lust in your ignorance, be ye holy in all manner of conversation. What are we to be? We're to be nonconformists toward the world. Romans 12, 2 is the other, other place where this idea of not fashioning or not conforming comes up. It says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Peter tells us, the believers, that we belong to God. We're his children, and as such, we're to act or be characterized, be defined by obedience. There are times when my kids respond to something in a way that turns my head. Maybe we're at the house, I'm sitting on a couch. I wouldn't say I'm the most attentive guy at that moment, but they do or say or react in a certain way that breaks my stupor, so to speak, and I look up. Why is that? Because that response doesn't represent our family. It doesn't represent our values, our mannerisms, our way of handling something. And it may be distinct to my family. And so I will say, uh, as I'm sure you have done or every family's done, that's not how a Van Hoven deals with that certain circumstance. That's not how we respond. You ever heard that from your parents? That's not how we handle it. My mom would tell me that all the time. I would always go to her and say, well, my friends are doing that. That's not what we do would be the answer. And now I understand why she said that, right? And every family has that. Why? Because that doesn't represent your family. That's not what we are going to do. God's children are not to align with this world's system. They're not to respond like the world. They're not to respond and live based on the world's criteria. Our lives are not fashioned, and that word means copied, made like, or shaped after what is seen and propagated by this world. So no matter what my kids have seen, no matter what they've watch somebody do, they respond in a certain way, and I say to them, we don't do that because we are Van Hovens. And that's a broad, you know, you know, I'll say, you're my kids. You're Heather's kids. Your mom would not accept that. The only reason I'm reprimanding them because she wasn't around. So um, we're diving in, right? We're understanding this. Why? Because that's not who you are. Well, as God's children... We are not to be shaping our life after what we've seen or heard or what's been accepted. That's why our standard always remains him and his word, because we're his children. And so we will respond, we will react, we will live on that standard because we are his. We don't adopt the world's habits, mannerisms, expressions, and behavior. We're not to give the outward appearance that we belong to this world at all. God's children instead are known by their alignment with God. And how do you know if you're part of God's family? Because you obey God and what he's commanded in his word. We are nonconformists regarding the world, but we are to be holy for God. And that word holy is a call to be set apart for him, set apart from sin, worldliness, to righteousness, a holiness driven because of our relationship with him. And one, as a believer, that you should sincerely want to see grow. By the way, that call to holiness has been the same expectation for believers from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. I'm going to go all the way back to my blurb on Leviticus. 
Here God tells us how we live. And, and Leviticus has a lot of details, very detailed into life. And one of the overarching lessons you understand is that God is not just over here saying, obey me in these big areas and do whatever you want in the little areas. Leviticus tells us that you're set apart to him in every component of your life. Leviticus eleven forty four through 45, a portion. For I am the Lord your God, ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves and ye shall be holy. For I am holy. And we'll talk about that part later. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19.2. Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 27. Sanctify yourself therefore and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 20.26. First portion of it. And ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy. Do you get the point? God's serious about you being holy. We're to be set apart for God. The Israelites could not walk away from that charge. It was impossible. And the book that that Moses is given, by the way, it starts with him out of the tabernacle. And by numbers, he is in the tabernacle with the Lord because they needed to understand what it meant to live in God's presence. We must understand what it means to live in God's holy presence. And so God says, be set apart. And the point is that this is the first thing that any Jewish boy or girl would read, they would understand that God expects them to be set apart. That expectation has not changed for us. The Apostle John writes in his letter, 1 John 3, 3, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Again, looking at that same idea that we are to be set apart, to be different for him. You see, your settled hope your fixed priority for Christ and on his return will stray if your life strays. Get a grip on your life. It is not to look like the world. It's not to be lived for the world and its priorities. Your life is to be set apart for God. He is your priority. You live to bring him glory. Yet when we stray from that, so will our hope. So will your passion. And we'll find ourselves conforming to the world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our mind. You see, quickly, we will walk away from a fixed hope that is on him alone, and we will set that hope on some other gain or gift or process of this world, and our life will crumble and be transformed or conformed to this world, and our thinking will engage in it. It all goes south quickly. Get a grip on your life. Make sure that it's not aligning with the world and its priorities but instead is truly set apart for God. Now, all of that idea of a right or holy mind and a right and holy life requires us to be driven by the right motivation. And as we look at this, and I mentioned at the beginning, if if you're sitting there and your motivation is guilt or tradition or image, it's a terrible motivation and actually will never result in the fruit of right thinking and right living. You have to have the right motivation. And here we look at 15 all the way through the first part of 21. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Live your life here on earth. And he says sojourning for a purpose. You are an exile. Live the exilic life, the not part of this world life 
in fear or reverence, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your, from your fathers. In other words, you're not redeemed like they would redeem a slave back then with money, with silver and gold coins from the vain traditions which are unhelpful, which are defamed, defiled, things that don't buy your redemption that you've received from your fathers. And it's not trying to blame their family, but so much as to say the world system doesn't work. But he says, you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that he raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. And so we're, we're turned completely to our proper motivation. And proper motivation is key to living out a truly settled hope. It's a key to a right mind and a right life. If your motivation is to keep up a good Christian image, it ultimately will not result in a truly holy mind and life because you will be consumed with image. You will think whatever you want. Because no matter what people say, nobody's really a mind reader except for God. Who knows your mind? God knows your mind even more so than you know your mind. God knows your mind. And so if you want to just keep up an image, well, you can do that depending on how determined you are, but it doesn't result in truly holy thinking and a holy life. Being guilted or nagged will not be the motivation that truly bears fruit. I can nag you to death to be at church. You might show up because you're sick of hearing me talk, but it's not going to bear holy living and holy thinking in your mind. You're just going to say, I turned off the nag. I stopped the guilty sensation. Holding to tradition never results in a true Christian life. Instead, we need the motivation listed here by Peter. Uh, One, we're to copy God's character. My kids at times copy my behavior usually my manner of responding vocally to things. And sometimes I'm embarrassed by how I must sound. I really am. Uh, Heather, I'm like, I will fuss at one of my kids. And Heather says, that's you. I'm like, why aren't we ever blaming your family? But either way, um, I put down, I must have some amazingly tolerant family and friends. Uh, But it's normal and natural, right, for kids to emulate their parents, to behave like them, to talk like them. Recently, someone was uh, texting Heather, and, and Heather responds, whether she's trying to or not, she, she oftentimes will sound like her mom, respond like her mom, to the extent that people almost, in essence, are texting or writing her, and in their mind, what do they hear? They don't even hear in Heather, they're hearing her mom, because that's natural for us to do that. We copy the behavior of our parents. I remember talking with missionaries they were sharing a story about a, a friends of theirs and these friends were on the foreign mission field. Their children were born there. And so they learn the native language as their first language. So they're, they're just as natural speaking, whatever language that was, as could be imagined. This is what was fascinating. They, of course, wanted their kids to learn English. So what do you do? You speak English at home. They were from Tennessee. They said, when you hear those kids speak English, they've never been in Tennessee in the sense of living there. They don't speak regular people English. I mean, they speak Tennessee English. And if you're offended by that and you're from Tennessee, just record yourself. Listen to someone. I'm just kidding. Uh, there's a host of people like that. But you know what I mean. There's an accent that comes out. What happened? Those kids emulated the accent of their parents. They didn't hear anyone outside of their home 
speaking English. They spoke a foreign language. But in the home, they heard Tennessee English, and so they reflected the speech of their parents. As one writer notes, Christians ought to be motivated in holiness by the desire and opportunity to reflect God's character. Why should you be set apart for God? Why should you be holy? Because your heavenly Father is holy. And if you have a true love for him, you desire to reflect that. It almost should be automatic. Remember those constant reminders in Leviticus? Be holy. Why? Because God's holy. We're to be motivated by who God is. That's a good thing. Our world, what is our world? And, and, and when I say Satan inspires this from them, why do they attack the God of the Old Testament, the holy God, the God who judges? Why do they throw stones against God? Because they want to undermine God's character. Why? Because as his children, you'll emulate his character. We are to be motivated by who God is. He is our heavenly father. He is the one we should be copying. As MacArthur notes concerning Israel, the dominant compelling reason for God's people to live in holiness was their relationship with God. He is our God. He is our Savior. That same reason carries the same weight today. So take a look at your life and ask yourself a serious question. Am I motivated to be holy because of the one who saved me, because the one who is my heavenly Father is holy? Or is my motivation to be holy still tied to image, still tied to what I think I'm supposed to do? Which, again, I'm not saying it's horrible to know I'm supposed to be holy, so I should live holy. That's why we have that call. But honestly, ask yourself, am I motivated by God's character? Who God is, does that drive my thoughts at all? Does it enter your mind at all? See, we're we're to be motivated by God's character, who our Lord is, to have a holy mind and a holy life. Yet Peter shares even more motivations. You're to be mindful, or we're to be mindful of God's judgment. We're not to be casual about God and forgiveness. We know our Heavenly Father judges impartially. And by the way, I want to make sure there's a clarification. When Scripture says that He judges impartially, it doesn't mean that He does so impersonally. Don't mix the two words. By impartially, it means this. There are no favorites. There is no special pass. There is no favorite son or daughter who can get away with more than others. We always joke about that, right? Well, you're the favorite, so you get away with that. You're the favorite, so you get that. You get to do this. The fact is, God is saying very clearly that he doesn't look with favoritism upon us. It doesn't mean he doesn't look on us personally. It's just that he doesn't pick one above the other. That means we don't become presumptuous in life, sinning, living how we want to, because we know God forgives his children. This is just taking his grace For granted, and Peter makes clear, it's not understanding God's judgment, God's response toward his children. So he says we're to conduct ourselves with fear. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. In other words, I'm not putting a lot of weight in the fact that you judge me or of man's judgment. He goes on, yea, I judge not mine own self. And that doesn't mean that he wasn't looking at his life and, and trying to make changes. In other words, he, wasn't, he was saying, my take on my life is not the, the one that matters. And your take on my life is not the one that matters. For I know nothing by myself. And that's a bold statement from the guy who probably knew the most of anyone humanly beyond Christ that walked the earth. Yet I am not hereby justified. In other words, I'm not justified just because I don't know of anything against me. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. 
Now, there's a host of people that write on their car, only God can judge me. Yet yeah, you're right. And that's not a flippant statement that you should be pacing on the back of your car at all. Because Paul is saying it not in a flippant way, but in a very serious way. In other words, all the judgment you can throw at me and all the judgment and justification I can give myself is absolutely meaningless because the one who really judged me is the Lord. And that's what Peter is reminding them of. Take heed, as 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand take heed, lest he fall. So think a minute. Have you been acting presumptuously regarding sin, forgetting you don't get a special pass? Peter says, conduct, live, walk, respond with fear. Approach God with reverence. We are not to lower God to us. That is just self-worship. And a host of people do that. American Christianity is, is inundated with that. God is above us, and we should always be conducting ourselves with fear in reverence to him. Yet the warning of God's impartial judgment doesn't round out our motivation. Instead, Peter returns now to the great salvation accomplished in Christ, reminding us that we're to be constantly thinking of God's sacrifice. We've been redeemed Our ransom has been purchased by Christ's full payment, redeemed not with the passing away perishable currency of this world, coins of silver and gold, the currency you would use to buy a slave on the auction block to ransom. If you were going to buy yourself out of slavery, you would use silver and gold, but instead you were ransomed, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, the one who God ordained before creation to redeem that creation from their horrible rebellion. And don't let that statement just pass you by because that'll ruin the motivation that's there. Before you were ever in existence, God planned to redeem you. It wasn't just that he redeemed you while you were a sinner. That's, that's what Romans teaches. But Peter is showing us how deep God's redemptive purpose was. And we talked in depth about this a couple weeks ago, but we need to get caught up in God's love a little bit and understand that he planned to redeem you before he ever created the world. Knowing you would be a horrible rebel, and now the plan has come to full fruition, manifest in these last times for us. In other words, you've seen Christ come, die on the cross, and be raised again to life, conquering sin and death. So what happens is we were rescued from futile ways, and that's the idea of vain conversations, things that don't work, things that are wicked and wrong that have been passed down by this world. You see, the world passes down a belief system that is useless, that only results in total bondage. And I can trace through, but don't have time, and nor do I think you want to listen to me do it. All the religions, even the ones that are most religious, as you walk through the world and you realize that their faith is complete bondage, it's something the world has passed down. It can get as close to Christianity as you want and true faith in the one and only God and his son, Jesus Christ, but it doesn't and it it results in bondage. So Titus 3, 3 states this, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving, and this is the whole point, you served, you worshiped, you went after diverse or different lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. If you look at the world system, it ultimately is a selfish system. It's focused on what you're going to get, and it is deceitful, it is disobedient, it is hurtful, hateful, envious, it is destructive. What Paul is saying and what Peter is saying is, You were completely buried in sin. 
you were just vested in this. Yet because of his sacrifice, we're rescued to be believers, to be his children, to be his redeemed, no longer enslaved to this world and condemned for eternity. That's why he says, who by him, by Christ, do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. And so we have Christ's death, his blood shed for us, his death, and then his resurrection listed here. And as David Helm so aptly summarized in a question, honestly, ask yourself, do I really need any other motivation for holy living? If you understand the depths of who you were, how wicked you are, and how useless this world system is, then you should need no other motivation to live a holy life. He saved you. God planned this from before time began to accomplish your redemption. What other motivation do you need for holy living? I just want you to imagine how it is to be God sitting up there and we're just hedging our bets, demanding almost more proof of why we should live a holy life as his children. And he gives it to us, but really we shouldn't need anything else. You see, we don't lack for proper motivation to live and think holy. We don't lack the right motivation for a settled hope. God's character exemplifies it. His judgment warns about it and Christ's sacrifice compels it. Right thinking and living driven by eternal motivation. So, and here how, how Peter closes, that your faith and hope might be in God or so that your faith and hope are in God. So examine your hope. Because that's how Peter is wrapping this up as he, he's gone through and he's going to turn and, and talk about what holy living looks like and our response as believers. But he's saying to you, look at your hope. Think about what your expectations and desires are, what you want to happen, and see if it is a truly settled hope, which means one that is fixed on Christ, his eternal work on our behalf, and his for certain return. And if you're struggling to see that as your real hope, because <coughs> I'm asking you to be honest with yourself, when you look for that hope, you instead find a hope on something in and of this life, something temporal, something that seems more desirable for the now of life, then take a look at your thoughts and your living. Ask yourself if you have a grip on your thoughts. Have they been properly gathered? Have you screened out the world's influence? Ask yourself if you have a grip on your life. Does your life look like the world around you or is it set apart holy for God? Let's pray together. And if I thank for the opportunity we have to study your word, uh, to be encouraged as Peter is writing to churches who have passed that time of immediate hope that they thought Christ would come soon, weeks, days, couple years, and, and now we're walking into to real life, dealing with the ups and downs, recognizing that they're going to have kids and grandkids and that they're going to pass out of this world. They have to understand that their hope remains the same, nothing changed. And so he's writing to them uh, to have a settled hope, and that's centered in uh, thinking that is correct and living that is set apart, motivated by your character, by future judgment, understanding we don't get a special pass out of that. And then thirdly, and, and most importantly, motivated because of your sacrifice. And so as we embark on life, as we enter the, the normal humdrum, because that's what the churches there were doing, everyday life, everyday hurdles, struggles, financial pressure. I'm sure there was those that faced that a lot as uh, they cracked down on their businesses and, and made it more difficult to earn a living. 
as it changed their social engagements, as, it, as, as health, whatever it may be, weighed in, Peter was reminding them, you have to have your hope fixed on Christ, on him coming back to make your goal eternity and not something here on earth. And so as we live here and, and we appreciate the blessings and recognize them for that, gifts that you've given us, help us to have a settled hope that our expectation and our goal, our priority, our base will be settled in knowing our Savior and in knowing our Savior is going to return for us. In your precious and holy name, amen. Amen.